for me, it's like we've got to improve our ability to execute skills at speed and be efficient with that. How can we apply efficient running mechanics, which we know a lot about, but have minimal disruptions when we're we're applying skills to that. So whether it's uh, whether we're passing at speed, whether we're we're rotating our upper limb to to fend off a defender, whether it's even just rotating to scan, make a decision, communicate, whatever that might be, whether it's kicking at speed, um, whatever that might be, we try got to have as minimal disruptions in there from an efficient upright running posture or an efficient acceleration posture or, or whatever that might be, just as minimal disruptions um, to our outputs. Ultimately, how can we maintain this higher output whilst executing these skills? Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast, the podcast that dives into the philosophies, ideas, and practices of some of the best practitioners in high-performance sport. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is all about training transfer and how collaboration with technical and tactical coaches and smart data collection can enhance that training transfer. So with Dan Grange and Dan Tobin, both of Gloucester Rugby, we have a little chat around specific examples of how training in the weight room and training in the gym transfers or doesn't transfer to the pitch and how they go about trying to understand that. So if you haven't listened to Nick Lumley's episode a few episodes ago, definitely check that out as well as this because both really complement each other in terms of one that's maybe and admittedly for on Nick's part a little bit more ahead than the other when it comes to trying to understand transfer and linking the physical with the technical and tactical. But this is a really interesting uh, interesting episode of the two Dans and touches on their two articles that they wrote for Sportsmith, where Dan Grange also has a little chat around game speed, again, and the transfer from a game speed model and influencing technical and tactical. So really, really interesting episode with these two and really excited to get this out there and get some feedback. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Hawking Dynamics. Hawking Dynamics is the world's first wireless force plate testing system. The Hawking Dynamics system is built for coaches to test in the real world, not just in the lab. Capture reliable data on all your athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor their progress in the cloud from anywhere in the world. The Hawking Dynamics force plates are wireless, portable and trusted by teams at every level of sport. Integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring program has never been easier or more affordable. If you want to see the Hawking Dynamics force plate system in action, head over to their website hawkingdynamics.com to schedule a demo or follow them on Twitter at Hawking Dynamics. So without further ado, over to the episode with Dan and Dan. Dan Tobin, Dan Grange, welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Thank you, Rob. Cheers, Rob. Cheers for having us. Thank you for coming on for the second time. Not that anyone will know, but a few technical issues on the first time. Not, the, not for the first time for me, actually, with, with technical issues uh, on my end. But that we're going to differentiate. So Dan Tobin is going to be Dan. Dan Grange is going to be Grangey. So Dan, coming to you first. Would you mind just giving people a little bit of insight into you, your story, where you are? Very brief, and then we'll get on to Grangey. Yeah, I'm currently head of performance at... Um... Gloucester Rugby, it's my eighth season um, here. Previous to that, I was 10 years at um, Leinster Rugby in a similar role. Um, well, a similar role for the last few years. I was 10 years there, like I said, and studied. I'm from Dublin in Ireland, as you can guess from the accent, and I studied 
sports science there and then my master's there and then moved over here in, in 2016. So yeah, it's me. Bringing a bit of culture to the chat, Dan. Yeah, absolutely. Two dirty northerners. Grangey, over to you. Uh, yeah, the dirty northerners, yeah. Um, so from Leeds, yeah, born and bred there. Did all my education through Leeds Beckett whilst I was doing a little bit of a playing career, very briefly, um, in both rugby league and rugby union. Um, started working with Leeds Rhinos, uh, rugby league, um, initially through the academy and then into the first team there for a probably about five coming into six years probably at the time there and then three seasons ago now I got the chance to move down to Gloucester through Tobin um, and then so yeah moved down to the southwest been here ever since with the first team there so um, yeah that's me that's pretty much where I'm at. Perfect love it short and sweet I like it right the first certainly first half of the chat it's going to be around training transfer because you've both written really, really good articles for Sportsmith. And I know that because people loved it. Social media went mad. Stats went mad. So this is, this is why we're here to chat about that. So we'll go training transfer first and we'll get Grangey, we'll get your input as well, but we'll, we'll mainly focus on Dan. So when it comes to training transfer, it's a little bit of a slightly murky area based on obviously the demands of the game and how complex it is to actually understand what transfers and maybe what doesn't. But what's your process? Where do you where do you start with trying to understand what transfers from the from the gym and from from your side, from the physical side, into a technical and tactical model? Yeah, I think the first uh, step we've taken in that process really is is trying to find out what the coaches want from the team. What is, what's the game model? What way are we trying to play? And what do we value in our game? So. We talk about KPIs a lot in terms of what are the the parts of our game that need to perform really well in order for us to be successful, and then we almost kind of reverse engineer from there into um, how we underpin that with our physical program, and then ensuring really that kind of technical models are in place um, in all those KPIs. So that for me, the transfer a bit comes from whatever the relevant strength, power, speed qualities we need to develop from the physical end, they need to be channeled technically into a sound technical model to improve game output really. So from that end, um, what we do has to be completely linked to the rugby program in our instance. Um, there has to be massive integration. We have to know what, what they're trying to get from it and then make sure that we're we're linked specifically to that. Um, so as, as an example, when the, a lot of the article was on on carry power and how we how we try to influence that area of the game so we identified that as a kpi we wanted to improve um we looked at the physical qualities that we know to relate to those areas so um things like power reactive strength acceleration we know that they're relevant things to acceleration sorry to carry power um but they don't they don't tell the whole picture it's not simply we get those qualities good and then we become a team that gets carry dominance because we, we found that wasn't the case. So it's then making sure there's a good technical model in place for the carry and then that that's coached well, developed well. And then, then we track that technically in the training environment. We track the KPI in the game situation and then you're just reacting. It's a bit of trial and error to see where those where those figures are moving, um, if they're going in the right direction and then altering the training program if not. So that's probably it in a nutshell really. So firstly, what's carry dominance and carry power? 
um, so carry dominance that the statistic is from the moment of um, from the point of the contact area so the point of the tackle a dominant carry is when um, the carrying player gets beyond that initial point of contact a negative carry would be the defender winning that collision area and driving you back from that initial contact point neutral is that you stay at that point of contact so um, yeah the carry dominant stats then are, are obviously we league wide stats that um we can look at our own performance and we can look at it in relation to the team. So that's that would be KPI we would have used. And how do you know, you mentioned a couple of metrics there, reactive strength index and a, a couple of others. How do you know that they relate to that KPI, that, te- that technical KPI? Um, it's probably a mix of things. There is, there is some, there is some uh, research studies on that. And uh, I think we joked about this last on that. Everybody, every S&C coach knows how to do a correlation study. So a lot of it is just running relationships between physical qualities that we develop and all the da- data that we have and some of these KPIs. And you'll get, you'll never get perfect correlations, obviously, but you will get indicators that, you know, there's, there's a trend towards acceleration being linked to guys who perform better in the carry area. Um, so it's a mix of our own data. I mean, the subjective feelings of well, what what makes sense from the point of view of. Um, so, for for example, our forwards um, who carry off nine say so the tighter carries are going to be slower carries. So probably strength is going to be more related to those type of outcomes than say a winger who may have a much higher speed um carry so then obviously speed of movement and power and everything else becomes more relevant in those situations so there's things that make sense there's research and then there's data that we have ourselves that um that build a picture for you really you don't know for certain but they build a good picture for you we'll have a little chat around the programming side and you've just touched on it there but i'd like to get grangy in here and just get his thoughts on where your head goes when when we try to talk about what we do talk about transfer Yeah, I guess like Dan touched on a bit there around like integration and like credit to Dan and and our head coach there. Like we've worked so hard over the past couple of years to to effectively integrate and understand what that means and, and kind of the how we act upon that. And that's like we're, we're all as like all our SNCs and and coaches all are responsible for certain areas. So so like we we're primarily responsible if, for me game speed for Dan carry power and and other things and scrum stuff and then. For other staff other things and it's kind of all our area to drive that all our responsibility to drive that area forward so when we're talking around like integration dan touched on a bit in his article he's like we've got to own that area to be able to get credibility from to integrate you know we've we got to own that own that area to be able to have like that stand within our coaching staff that they respect what we do to be able to then get that like effectively integrate and then when we tell you about integration it's just putting different things on the table it's collaborating and from, from our side and then from their side, we've got different backgrounds as such and different levels of kind of education there that we can all bring different like solutions to the problem as such. Like, and, it, and it's, I'd love to say it's such a stream, like streamlined process, but it's pretty messy at times. Like like Dan said around the carry power, we spent, how long was it now? Maybe like two, three months of hundreds and hundreds of carries and debating it for hours and hours and hours and end and then getting the coach's opinion, trying to understand the coach's opinion in, in biomechanical terms and, and kind of going through that process and to try to come up with the best solutions and it's messy like it, it's not uh it's not a 
pre-processed like we're in pre-season at the moment and you know it's nice it's planned it's everything's pretty you know it's just about executing and delivering but when it's in season you just got to navigate kind of those problems as, as they come you know like and as they kind of present themselves on on a weekend um so i guess when we talk around transfer of training we're trying to just really just integrate as effectively as we can attack all kind of problems from a multitude of angles um whether it's a rugby side or whether it's a performance side or on an individual basis have they got a, a medical limitation is there a like what what is that problem how best can we put an intervention in place to solve that problem for that for that player or for the squad as a as a whole really because you guys are in post because of the respect and the expertise and the knowledge and the education that you've got in your particular domains which is on the physical side but then you we talk about integration that merges into the technical and the tactical side on, on the first part of this journey and this may be going back a long time probably maybe through multiple coaches um what did you do to try to get yourself in a position where you could discuss these kind of things, discuss technique and how it relates to the physical side? And I'm, I'm coming to you, Dan, on that because um, it might, might relate a little bit more to you. Um, yeah, how did you go about that? Because I'm just, I'm just trying to, I'm trying to put myself in the position of the listener who may be thinking, well, my coach, my head coach, my assistant coach just sees me as the physical guy, and me stepping into their domain might feel uncomfortable or probably does feel uncomfortable. So how did you bridge that gap? Um, the answer is to how I used to do it. I, I didn't used to do it, to be honest. And that was um, the most successful part of my career from a performance point of view was when that didn't happen. And that it's a bit bizarre, to be honest. It's almost that the more integrated we become, um, the more complicated things become. But that that's the way the game is moving. That's the way performance is moving I think like like Granger said there I think the first port of call for any S&C coach is that you must be outstanding in your own area in order to get the respected and step into a different room and go do you know what there's a few things that have gone well in our area that I think you could look at and we could improve the rugby program with it you know so f- as an example for that um, we would have done a lot of work around um, using like coaching reviews and coaching checklists and things like that uh, last season to try and improve the delivery of, you know, coaching whatever area of, of our program that we were trying to improve. That then something is obviously that transfers across domains because some of the detail of what and how you coach might be different, but there's a general structure there to, to that that's transferable across domains. So if our department goes well in that area, then it has a transfer effect to another area that, you know, you can offer that with, some integrity that this has worked here here's here's how that's gone for us what do you think do you think that would work you know in a rugby domain or a medical domain or whatever else um so i think to go back to the original one it's we we talk about own collaborating influence as you as you move along that spectrum from um s and c to kind of that special strength area where you're working with a coach in terms of that i mentioned the scrum area or something like that where you're trying to transfer some strength strength gains say that we make in the gym into the technical aspects of the scrum and then you've actually got the 8v8 element which is obviously going to be the rugby coaches completely in that sense but you might influence intensity volume where it is in the week order of exercise all those kind of things so you need a wide wide range of skill sets in order to be able to work across that spectrum but i wouldn't expect you know a 22 year old snc coach to have that straight away they need to focus on owning their area been very, very good technically. Been good at developing relationships with players, 
and the bit where coaches will, will come as you go through. So it's not something that you hit straight away. Um, and I think probably it's more, if I'm the experienced one in the team, it's more my responsibility to make sure that those relationships are in place from an integrated point of view. And then the, the, the staff that are with me say they may, may have a simpler task in terms of you just need to own and deliver that. I'll talk to these guys and make sure everybody's on board. Um, so yeah, it, it depends on the stage you're at really in your career in terms of what you need to prioritize from a, from a communications or relationships point of view. I'll get Grange's um, opinion on this as well, but just coming back to you, Dan, how much, how much is it about you understanding the technical and tactical coaches and their job and understanding rugby versus expecting them to come into your domain or our domain and, and, and go that way? How much has it been the other, the other way, you moving into them and understanding their world? Uh, yeah, it, it, it does go two ways, certainly. Like over the years, definitely I've had coaches who do dip into the, the domain and claim to be experts. And then um, I've never played the game. So I could never really bluff the bit of going into the office and going, you know, I've been looking at this, what do you think? So you've, you've got to come at it from from your own area with your, with your own angle, which to me is, um, like I said, the biomechanical edge, for example, of we look at running mechanics a certain way. We look at certain landmarks and positions that we want the player to be in. If they hit those landmarks and positions consistently, they'll perform better. They're less likely to get injured. So any technical aspect of any game should have those technical landmark positions that we look for to be technically stable. So it doesn't matter what the sport is, whatever else, and you don't need to know what those landmarks are. But you can ask the question of what are the technical landmarks of the tackle that we should consistently be hitting? Do we consistently hit them? How do we track it? How do we coach it? What you know? What is the level across the group of that? So even just probing and asking those questions then we'll, we'll develop some conversation hopefully if your relationships are good and then from there you start that's the influence but you start to influence maybe that aspect of the program and from our end if we've got players who we think are quick enough and strong enough and powerful enough to be dominant in the tackle area and then we start influencing or probing the technical execution of that area then that's how we connect and get transfer you know so it's kind of you can't just sit in your gym and think we've nailed it here boys everybody's jumping high and running fast and squatting well that's not going to guarantee anything without those other elements so it's um it's all context specific it depends on your situation and your relationship with coaches and some coaches will naturally be very technical in how they deliver some coaches may be more by feel not be able to explain it very well it's none of it's right or wrong it's just you have to navigate whatever context you're in really to um to try and find a solution. Grangey, you have played the game. So how does your input change based on your experience as a player? If at all? Um, yeah, probably if at all. Yeah. So like, like similar, like similar answer. Just, yeah, I like to say like, I have played a bit, but equally like, I got to be very respectful. The coaches are, are there because they're excellent, excellent coaches. And they've been, as a result, they've been excellent players. Typically, like, you know, we've got a lot of people in the building that have, have won big trophies and I'm here claiming I know it all because I've finished bottom of the championship a few times, you know, and it's, you got to be really respectful for that. Um, 
it can give you a little bit of an advantage from maybe a terminology standpoint and a bit of a feel element to it. But, you know, I, I try to be as respectful as I can there is that like, I'd love to have been coached by some of the coaches that, that coach our lads now. It's just, it's just different levels. Um, but similar to like what Dan says, like we got to attack it from, I think the bit, the main side we've attacked it from a, is like a technical model standpoint of, of how we can apply basic sound biomechanics to these, these sporting actions and, whether that's going navigating that through through research and kind of probing the coaches based off what they what they feel and what they see and just their general experience, how can we apply research to that or our general understanding of efficient mechanics um, to kind of come up with technical models where we can hold players accountable to these and we can coach towards these kind of KPIs and these pillars. Like for example, a season or two ago, we we had we tried to solve a bit of a problem around kicking at speed. For example, just as one one things, this is many a list we, we could have gone on there, but like kicking at speed was one of these avenues we went down and kind of the coaches had their own opinions on it from a technical landmark and so they should. And like that just resulted in a lot of probing, a lot of questions, get their feel, understanding what are the landmarks they're expecting to hit. And then it navigated me to go away and look at a load of Aussie rules research because that's the nature of their sport. And, and does it apply? Can we create a, a kind of common ground there between technical models can i go back to then the coaching staff look is this confirming your, your decision here is this confirming your kind of gut feeling if yes brilliant let, let's create a create a kpi around this if if no why not where's it break down i'll provide a little bit of evidence based off what i've come back with and then vice versa um and then ultimately we'll come to a common ground of a technical model which then we can have say three or four simple kpis that we can navigate our training to and kind of drills and naturally latch onto one area or the other and then navigate our cues and our processes as we go through there. And that's just like a, a real brief example of probably how we approach it. And although I've played the game, you know, it's, they're, they're the experts. Like we, we, we got to, like Dan says, like own our own area and come out from our own side. Gives you a little bit of an advantage sometimes with a terminology and maybe a bit of a feel for it, but, um, and certainly like relationships with the players like that, that, that does help like the communication with the players in terms of just understanding their feelings and kind of what they're, what they're experiencing that definitely helps, but, but yeah, definitely kind of stick to bring our own expertise from our side from it. Dan had a little laugh when you mentioned about finishing bottom of the championship, Grangey. How much grief do you get for that? That's all, that's all I've club? ever done. That's all I've ever done. <laughs> I've done it in two clubs. It's great. <laughs> It's the highest of highest. Nobody ever heard of him as a player, to be honest. No, it's a myth. <laughs> it's good. It's good. I like it. Right. Um, one specific exam- example that you mentioned in the article, Dan, was the effect of strength on acceleration in, in your population and the, and the diminishing returns once you pass a certain point. Would you mind just taking us through that process? Because that could be an interesting one for coaches to understand so they can try and map that path out for themselves and get a little bit of a deeper understanding of that relationship in their population. Yeah, again, from that one analysis tool I have, correlation studies, that would have been years and years of just looking at numbers and, and just relating one thing to one thing to the next. And then everybody knows there's a relationship between, you know, relative strength and acceleration, for example. Um, what we were finding was that players would get to a very good level, say, and as they would continue to improve that strength level, we, do, we you have firstly you have a feeling that these guys aren't getting any quicker off the back of the gains that they're making, 
Um, and if you look across a wide spectrum of um, levels in terms of strength and acceleration, the tendency we were finding was that if you if you pull out the kind of the top guys and that, so around about that double body weight mark and the squat, um, the relationship disappears pretty much between relative strength and, and acceleration. And again, it, it's a training transfer related thing as in it is at that stage something else is going to determine how quick you are other than you know how much force you can produce um which will be you know application of it in the right direction everything else but um so yeah there is that general law thing that we would see across a lot of areas the same with counter movement jump or power output or everything else it's effective at improving performance from a low level athlete to a mid-level to a high-level athlete but once you get to a high level then something else is going to be more important to improve performance um, something probably more specific and, and more related to the event and it's knowing having a feel for where that point of diminishing returns is and it's respecting it both both sides of that curve really I mean if you are a 1.5 times body weight squatter you likely are going to improve acceleration by improving your strength levels but if you start getting to 2, 2.1, 2.2, are you going to keep chasing that in an attempt to improve acceleration? What's the risk-reward there? Um, and in in our experience, really, there, there, there isn't much reward from a, um, a transfer to other qualities point of view once your strength levels are very, very high. Did that differ across position groups? Well, it depends what you look at. Not not in terms of relationship between strength and speed, but the difference across position groups would be depending on what your outcome measure is. So obviously we want our type five players who are involved in set piece to be stronger. We're more obsessed with their strength levels than a back row forward, for example, who might have less of an influence in that static, isometric, high force part of the game. So we do look for greater qualities in some than others. Um, but there's, there's also things like if you... If you're chasing strength to improve power, to improve acceleration, you get some athletes that, for whatever reason, mechanically just don't squat well, don't squat a lot, but they still produce a lot of power and account movement jump and they run very fast. So do you need to continue chasing strength with that player if, if the outcome you're looking for is speed performance? And then and what, what potentially could go wrong with that? Do you change the mechanical buildup of that player a little bit by chasing it and then affect the qualities that they already have that, that are already things that you're, you're out for anyway? Um, so yeah, there there is there's positional bits in that, but I think I think it's a general rule to be honest that that law of diminishing returns that you know you one thing improves another up to a point and then it kind of stops improving the other thing and you got to go searching elsewhere for improvements and that's you know that's a lot of why periodization models work and everything else. So just talking about squatting and potential alternatives, and I'm coming to Granger here. I'm throwing this into the mix, so so bear with me. We had Shane Lehan on the podcast from Aussie Rules. We had Nick Lumley, who you guys will know, I'm guessing. Um, and they both talked about using non, I suppose, technical exercises like a leg press to, to um, sorry, technically um, demanding exercise like, like, a, like a squat. And instead of that, using a, things like a leg press. When it comes to transfer, that people may get a bit aggy when it comes to doing them kind of things, but is that something that you guys would do or not do or favor or not favor? Um, it's a good question. Um, with, with our kind of... Why is Dan laughing? Palmer, I guess we look... Have you had, a co- uh, have just, you had this conversation? Uh, I know, he or do knows you know I, it's a uh, 
He knows I prefer being on the field. Um, <laughs> no, it's like we're not overly precious. We, we'll we'll squat our guy. We don't typically have a leg. We have one leg press, so we, and no one ever uses it really unless they're in rehab. But um, by the nature of how specific we go in other areas, and then how kind of our also then our efficiency program and how kind of foundational we work there and how consistent we work there, we can allow our our strength program is pretty. We call it essentialism, but really it's just minimalistic. You know, it's pretty pretty low volume. We we do probably two exercises um, on the lower limb day, which shocks other players when they come to us. Um, you know, we, we keep things pretty targeted. If we, we want a certain quality, we have a, a library of, like I say, probably about two exercises, sometimes even one, really, just that, that specifically we know underpins that, that, uh, that quality that we want to develop. So, you know, yeah, like, like you say, we do have some individuals that, they may not squat well biomechanically, they may not squat well, they might just find that uncomfortable, they might have some sort of medical background issue, whatever, patella tendonitis, that they just got long levers, taller guys just typically mechanically don't squat, squat well. So we'll hex bar deadlift. But then if that, like, we'll always try to solve the problem to try to do one of those two things if, if we are chasing max strength, for example. Um, just by the nature of our kind of overall program, when we're looking at these areas that are highly transferable or highly specific as such, um it allows us then to just work purely on capacities if when we're, when we're in the gym we're not trying to get too complex there we're trying to work on developing capacities whether that's max strength whether that's rate of force development power reactive strength whatever that might be um at that time it's it's pretty um yeah our, our gym programs are probably not um you don't come into the gym and see loads of exercises there you know they're pretty targeted they they um they don't change often um, obviously, the qualities we're trying to chase will change, but when we're chasing, say, max strength, for example, though those kind of um, those ex- exercises will stay consistent, and some guys will do that pretty much all year round. It's it's not, you know, because it allows us to be targeted in what we want to do. We might get into that a little bit later if we've got time, but just to keep you in your domain that you feel most comfortable, Dan, on on the field. Just moving to the the game speed game speed development. That's that's Dan saying not. And you say, not me. Um, the importance of understanding the game model before embarking on this game speed journey, and you've basically just kind of outlined it uh, previously with the with the transfer stuff. But how does the game model influence what you do from a developing speed and, and game speed side of things? Yeah, it's it's probably like your primary port of call. Like you'll always have a good feeling whenever you try you know, every off season where you're trying to go with the next, the next season's program and, and kind of how you're evolving your game speed program. But you know, understanding kind of whether you call it a game model or our, our principles of play, whatever it is, like it's pretty essential. Like if we want to go on this whole process of being a highly integrated program and, you know, we want to apply principles of essentialism and narrow down our, and be really targeted in our, in our program. We've got to be able to collaborate, like we've said. So we've got to understand what those principles are and like what the outcomes of those are and what the coaches really want there. So everything we kind of do, like Dan says, everything we do has got to have an impact on our on our game model. Otherwise, kind of, why would you do it? Like we can work on a scale of kind of general to specific, but at the end of the day, we've got to win games on the weekend. And and you know, there's there's certain obviously general qualities that kind of underpin that. But when we're looking at game speed and we work it out from a kind of highly specific end in terms of representatives of the game as such. But, you know, we've we got to try and influence things that are going to make our individuals better or make our team better. 
whether, whether that's working targeted on an individual basis, whether that's change of direction, evasive qualities or whatever, or whether we're trying to underpin the system fusing coordinative qualities. And that was kind of the main reason why I kind of navigated around the article is you see a lot of evasive quality stuff out there, which is brilliant. And that, that's, that's what I love. And that's what you can delve into. And it looks great. And it feels great when you're doing it. But you know, the, some of the less flashier stuff, I guess, is more of the coordination qualities to underpin the system. And because like, like what me and Dan have spoken endless amounts of time around, it's like, you know, these players are under so many constraints in a game, right? Their decision-making is literally honed in with so many different principles or, or rules or guidelines as such. It becomes so um, predictive almost, manipulative, you could call it. Like they ultimately are narrowed in such a focus that they're either carrying on with the system or they're beating someone with footwork. So that kind of navigating my process around, a thought process around game speed is we either work on their ability to break out the system and, and do something brilliant as an individual from an evasive qualities or we try and underpin them to affect our system and make our system better and, and what our attack coach is working so hard on let, let's let's ride in behind that and support that um so the answer the long the long-winded answer to your question um yeah it's it's essential it's essential yeah that we've got to understand what we're working back from at the end of the day you mentioned in the article robust running and feel free to jump in if one of you the person wants to dive in and add something by the way in between in between points you mentioned that the concept of robust running i think it was john Pryor who you'd kind of given credit to with that what do you what do you take as robust running in terms of a, a principle yeah i guess it's like a probably dashed around as a term and nobody really understands or knows really what it means and i'm not going to claim that <laughs> i know the true definition of how it john sounds Pryor cool is it but it cool, yeah, yeah it sounds great yeah um lads love it as well like it's just like for me it's like we've got to improve our ability to execute skills at speed and be efficient with that how can we apply efficient running mechanics which we know a lot about but have minimal disruptions when we're we're applying skills to that so whether it's uh whether we're passing at speed whether we're we're rotating our upper limb to, to fend off a defender, whether it's even just rotating to scan, make a decision, communicate, whatever that might be, whether it's kicking at speed, um, whatever that might be, we've tried got to have as minimal disruptions in there from an efficient upright running posture or an efficient acceleration posture or, or whatever that might be, just as minimal disruptions um, to our outputs. Ultimately, how can we maintain this higher output whilst executing these skills? That, that would be my interpretation of it. How can we kind of get these stable landmarks that we can hold true within many different scenarios um, that we might face in a game? And it can, the, the robust running side of things was probably first interested me when, when we're looking at trying to underpin the system, where like not many coaches in my experience apply a system where they rely on an individual having to beat somebody 1v1 in those scenarios, in my opinion. Like, I just think they, they don't, they apply a system that creates space for other people by manipulating lines of running, etc., manipulating defenders in and blah, 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 blah. But so a lot of the times what we're looking at is our ability to execute skills, either coming off curves or in straight lines. That's in rugby union, particularly in rugby league, it was massive. It was, it was the same thing. Um, so that's where robust running really kind of came into, came into fruition for me um, in the past couple of years to try, when we were navigating this kind of integration process, we started terminating pass run positions because it was easy to resonate. It was a kind of collaborative language between departments and Ruby coaches understood it. 
they understood exactly what we kind of meant by that and then players can understand it everybody could resonate with it without me saying oh robust running yeah this is this is a fancy term we look at in snc but um it certainly had much more kind of understanding and buy-in from the players in that sense just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Dan and Dan. I hope you enjoy part one. So over in part two, we have a little chat around game speed and how Dan Grange and Dan Tobin help influence that game speed model and again, help that transfer into the te technical and tactical elements of the program. So really cool part two coming up. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Team Builder. Team Builder is a software for performance coaches around the world. The powerhouse platform increases efficiency, saves paper, and can handle any type of programming. It's a perfect fit for professional and academy teams, performance institutes, schools, and universities. Team Builder is full of tools that help coaches' needs. Multiple max tracking methods, 16 plus reports, evaluation testing, and goal setting, just to name a few. Coaches also have access to consultations with Team Builder's in-house sports scientists to help manage and analyze data. Head to teambuilder.com and sign up with promo code SPORTSMITH to start your 30-day free trial. And now back to the episode with Dan and Dan. You mentioned this, this separation, and that's something you talk a lot about in the article in, in this particular section. Would you mind just explaining that and building that out for us, uh, maybe around the, the qualities needed to be able to execute that, the, the, the technical aspects? I know there's a lot to it, but the general technical aspects that lead to su a, a successful movement in those, in those terms? Yeah, like I guess it, it, it builds out exactly what I said there around trying to maintain stable, efficient running mechanics. Like... We want to be able to maintain a nice stable pelvis that yes will transition between anterior pelvic tail etc but a stable pelvis whilst effective front side mechanics all this all this stuff that everybody you know is, is buzzing around which is brilliant but whilst being able to rotate our pelvis whilst being able to extend that through our thoracic um being able to fend off different positions etc past different positions whilst we're able to maintain a square stable pelvis um so we talk a lot about upper limb rotation and like you say being able to make maintain a square stable pelvis um we challenge that through different speeds we go work like say we work from general stuff in the gym there um prior to prior to weight sessions there's little prep drills um we work very specifically on the field we do different plate punch variations where we're we're holding plates out of um with upper limb rotation whilst being able to run square um whether it's run over wickets or we challenge that with speed where we're punching it out in a dynamic way we're, we're banded at the waist um so it challenges your frequency to create that that stable pelvis and our front side mechanics as we go through there. And then we piece it together into kind of different passing variations, passing over wickets. It doesn't have to be majorly fancy. We spent a lot of the time just racing whilst completing a pass. Just literally running square as fast as we can whilst completing a pass. And that was our kind of most simple, but probably our most effective training tool with it. And as we kind of build it up, we build it up, we layer it up, we go into 2v1s. We add kind of different perceptual demands, I guess, to it and try to apply that in kind of a um a representative practice that underpins one of our principles of play um so i guess from a purely from a technical standpoint we're looking at a stable pelvis how, how well can you maintain efficient running mechanics that efficient upright running cycle whilst being able to rotate our pelvis to kind of and and be um stable within different different environments damn tobin is this something 
what Granger mentions there is that something that the, the technical and tactical coaches get heavily involved in and they become the kind of support for for Grangey and, and yourself? Or are they very much involved because there's a there's a ball? Or are they on the sidelines and go, Grangey, Dan, it's up it's up to you? How does that look from a you know, if you stand back and have a little look, who's involved and and where? What does that what's that practice look like? Yeah, that, that's probably the trickiest part of it because we've we've gone through all different stages and levels of this where we've been highly highly integrated with rugby and SNC running a drill. We've taken some drills ourselves. The coaches sometimes take an idea that we might have implemented and run with it. Um, and probably we've played with it and wrestled with it for a number of years. And I think our problems are a lot simpler now. We kind of know what we need to get through, what positions we need to stabilise in our playing group. Um, and we're very, very careful now to not get almost lost between two stools, between us and the rugby coaches, which is what can sometimes happen. It almost, we've been through periods and there are probably our most regrettable sessions where we leave it and go, that wasn't quite a coordination drill and it wasn't quite a rugby drill. It was just something in between and nothing at the same time. So we've got to be careful to really put a name on what you're trying to achieve in a session and what a drill is trying to achieve within that as well. So that if it's a coordination exercise to build a block for something else, then that's fine. That's what we what we go after. If it's a highly, like as Dan said, representative decision-making type drill and it's more on the rugby end, well then let it be that. And, and um, you know, that's more on the, the rugby side of it. So it's kind of, I think where we're where we're better now than we have been in the past is having more of a, a periodized model of when we're going to implement certain things and what we're going to do to achieve what we what we need to achieve in that, so that we don't get lost between you know integrating with the coaches and then like I said you kind of end up in this murky world where you kind of finish your session and goes I'm, I'm not sure what we actually did there, so it's it's being cleaner on that now I think is probably the challenge of it. But like I said that that's the challenge of collaboration is that do they fully understand what we want? Do we fully understand what they want? And if there's a breakdown there, then sometimes what the players get ends up being a little bit confusing. So it's almost making sure that you've got complete clarity and it comes back again to clarity on game model, clarity on principles and us having clarity. We have to be clear on what we're trying to achieve and really, really understand it. So we'd have, even before um, Grange was with us, I was wrestling with, Franz uh, Bosch's book for about three years where he burnt about five of them um, <laughs> trying to figure out what is he on about where are we going with this how does it apply the inventing uh, for me and then John Pryor probably translated a lot of that stuff and then you know I've spent time with um, working with Dan Paff as well and Grange has too and then he probably simplified a lot of those things that he calls it landmarks instead of attractors it's just more accessible language and that's probably simplified even more what we do that the Bosch method is a huge amount of, you know, variability. And it's like Cirque du Soleil at times where you're throwing everything at players and trying to find stable attractors. And we've probably gone more towards, you know, what we can actually just have one or two drills for hip lock that will get us what we need there and develop the tissue quality, develop the coordination. And then we don't have to worry about it. We don't need 28 different variations in the same thing there because it's impossible to manage it even. So, um, yeah, it, it's kind of with experience over time, you learn to navigate and understand what we're trying to do ourselves. And then we're 
we need to be able to explain that in really simple terms to a rugby coach who's got no sports science or biomechanics background. And if we make that language accessible, then you start to build a collaboration. And equally on their side, they need to be explain need to be able to explain their principles of play and what they're trying to achieve in a really simple way for someone who never played a game can understand it. And when that happens, then you've got integration. So integration is a fluffy term that's thrown around as in, I come in in the morning, I give the coach a high five and we're integrated. It's not that, it's a complete understanding of what each what each end of the spectrum is. I do do that, but <laughs> um, <laughs> it's a complete understanding on each end of what the other person's trying to, or what the other department's trying to achieve, if you like. And when that clicks and you get it right, it can be very, very successful in terms of where your program can go. But it's happened wrong probably more times than it's happened right over my time. There's a probably just an interesting point in that. Sorry, I was just no, going to go say on. that. Um, that Dan, Dan talked a lot about that around like the loads of really high variations in exercise. And it's probably like a good point on here. And we've navigated this conversation so many times. It's like around, well, when should I progress this drill? Oh, I'm doing this drill. Oh, I'm using a plate all oh, this time. Now I'm, now I'm using a, a aqua ball or whatever, whatever it is. And it's like, just doing variation for variation's sake. Um, and we've kind of navigated this process a few times. It's like, we get 20, what, 24 minutes a week with players. In, in season, that's that's probably half. That's that's 15 in terms, of, in terms of game speed qualities. And it's like, you know, for us, this is like, it's what we think of every day. So it's just, you, you're consistently thinking about it all the time. You're trying to see how your program moves on. So there's, you can have a tendency to go, okay, I need to shift this on here. Um, like just personally because I'm, I feel like I need to I feel like I need to add variability to this or whatever but in reality it is an absolute minute period for the player in the week and likelihood they're not as bothered at all as you are in this whole area so you know it's just a case of that that, that has allowed us to really hone in on, on these exercises because we can have such a narrow and I think we have that now we have such a narrow um library of drills to work on a specific quality um because we we understand that it's literally probably less than one percent of, of the players week and it's like they just want to get in they want to be told and they want to get the adaptation they want to see the benefit like we don't need to keep varying these exercises as as just because we're thinking about it five days six days a week there five six hours a day you know what i mean grangy could you give us a maybe give us an example well. oh sorry dan go on Sorry, no, I was just going to say, I think there's there's a massive amount of accountability in the program as well that, ha- that has to be built in because you can be chasing these things and throwing all the eggs against the wall with any type of program, thinking that oh, we've, we've delivered 28 exercises this week, we're doing a great job. If you're trying to improve something technically, you've got to ensure that you've actually developed it, stabilized it, um, and you're tracking that over time, whatever the position is that you're trying to affect, whether it's in a upright running acceleration change of direction whatever it is or or something like the carry area the tackle you've got to be tracking if you're trying to develop am i actually affecting technique in the long term here or am i just doing drills and not there's no accountability in what you're doing and then that's where you end up in this wishy-washy world of not really achieving anything you're just doing stuff so i think the accountability of um tracking your progress is is, is massive in any program but particularly in this area because the whole biomechanics movement efficiency realm from in my experience has often been quite unaccountable for 
what it's trying to achieve. It's just kind of you doing stuff in warm-ups, you're doing stuff around speed sessions. Are you affecting speed mechanics? Oh, I, I didn't, I didn't, I don't know, didn't measure it. I think so. But it has to be, you have to actually track those things and find out whether it's happening or not. Grenji, would you mind just giving us a, potentially giving an example of where you've gone from this wide-ranging, potential wide-ranging selection of exercises and then dialed it down. I mean, Dan had mentioned the hip lock example. That could be one to go down. But just give us an example of where you've gone from wide-ranging exercise selection to like a handful and just drill those as much as possible. Um, yeah, I guess like the, probably the evasive quality is, is like, if we're looking at, say, not, not necessarily the upper limb separation side of things, we're now looking at the opposite side, kind of the, the evasive qualities, the, the sidestepping strategies, the change direction strategies. That's probably been the one where we've really narrowed that down now. And it's underpinning that we know there's so many different types and styles and variables to do with change direction, entry speed, entry angle, exit angle, whatever it might be different individual nuances within that strategy. But now we've got realistically three. And even in the article I put out, it's four, and it's even narrowed down since then. That's constantly probably getting smaller rather than larger. Um, we've got probably three three key strategies that we know occur frequently. We know players um, believe that those strategies, one of those strategies is typically their X factor, if that's, what if that's the style of player they are. Um, even if it's not the style of player they are, they, they acknowledge it's some, a quality that they need to develop for their position within our system. Um, it might be different across teams, I'm sure it is, but um, definitely within that, that sort of evasive qualities now, it's like you can get caught up on and lost in different types of change direction and, and all this. And, and like Dad says, like, we work a bit with, with Dan Path. We spent a lot of conversations there and, and this is one that we've ha I've had with him recently around change direction is... You know, you got different layers to it in the sense of we can work on general change of direction and apply those principles, and we do different forty-five degree cuts and ninety degree cuts and general stuff, hundred and eighty degree turns to develop those qualities. But when we're looking at evasive qualities, that's a, a different layer. How can we narrow in and hone in on two, three key ones there? And then the next layer to that is okay. How we how are these players changing direction into contact into then Dan's carry power principles? How and then that's another layer. But we're then applying one or two key principles to that and it's like although we may have multiple layers and multiple different on working on a scale of general to kind of specific as such we're really honing in on, on one or two strategies um and that's probably the the most kind of relevant example in, in my opinion is that we can get lost on and there's loads of good research out there. there's loads now like it's really coming about and especially with evasive qualities that's starting to come in now it's like but there's loads of different strategies that you can get lost in and going, oh, this scenario might have this split step or shuffle step or goose step or or even a, a spin and turn and pivot, whatever it might be. And that might happen, yes. But, you know, can we just now hone this down? Can we chunk these things together into key pillars and key principles of, of one or two different strategies that kind of encompass everything along that scale? Um, and then obviously by the nature of it, like Dan says, like what are the, key landmarks that we want to we want to chase there is it deceptive landmarks from an entry entry point of view or is it separation landmarks from an exit point of view so then change direction strategies grangy are the four that you listed which ones what are the four and which ones which one's been cut even since the uh even since the article got published um 
we call it the triangle. Um, really, like research, it's probably a, a split step or a shuffle step, depending on the, probably their physical qualities and the kind of confidence that players have. Um, backs, it might be a bit more of that kind of split step where they have kind of a bit of a bilateral jump into it. You see a lot of the, um, a lot of your highlight reel type steps. So these guys are for a, for a forward, it's a bit more of a shuffle step. Um, Franz Bosch then calls it an options cut. And now you can already see how people get lost within the, the, the different processes. You've got three different names for a similar thing. Um, we just call it a, a triangle. Ultimately, this is kind of a, a low entry cut, um, typically one where we want to have guys having the ability to go left or right to, to be able to decide late. They have both options open, available. Um, we focus probably on two pillars there around deception and separation. Um, we can't do that across across all different types, but different different types of deception mean different things. Um, we look at the lane change a lot, which is ultimately just um, probably more of a traditional cut where we're trying to maintain as much velocity as we can, really acute change direction, small, tiny deviations where from a rugby standpoint, you're looking at cutting probably from one shoulder to the other or like what we call the lane change. That's the analogy can we use there because we, we talk to them at times about being able to uh, be in a 100-meter sprint, change lane, but stay in the race. That, that's the kind of the foundation behind the lane changes. We're trying to we're coming in upright postures and we want small, acute little deviations. Um, again, a lot of probably probably research terms of maneuverability. Um, and then, you know, we, we look a bit at the what we call a zigzag, which is ultimately kind of a, a hard deviation. Um, typically kind of happens in the backfield when you've got a bit more space and a bit more time. Um, this ultimately tries to, you got to try ultimately make space here to be able to take it. Um, Typically, when you've got a defender who's backpedaling in a pretty sound position, ready to uh, ready to make the tackle, and you're approaching him, you've you're almost just trying to destabilize him. If they're in a if they're in a, a pretty stable position from a defensive posture, they're just laterally back shuffling, and they're, they're they're pretty comfortable there. They're trying to guide you off towards a touchline, and they're kind of using them to their friend. You know, you've got to try to destabilize them to be able to manipulate him and then create space for yourself, um, and ultimately kind of take that opportunity. Um, and then the fourth one there is just a, a, a cut to a curve, which would just be a simple, like the, the most simple strategy that, you know, we probably don't don't really chase too much um, in a game speed session. It's just a cut to a curve, just a one foot plant, and ultimately just being being able to be efficient running curves. Um, we might look at curve running and from more of a, a general efficiency standpoint, but we won't really, I, I, we haven't really recently chased it or layered it um, within a game speed session. Um, we kind of let max velocity exposure and max velocity qualities kind of take care of that really. Dan, Granger's mentioned right at the start of that a um, little bit around the terminology and different names, different things. How important is it for you guys to be able to communicate effectively what you're planning, why you're doing things to the coaches and be, on a, be in a common language for them to understand and for them to potentially be involved and assist with what, what you're doing? It probably depends on the area really. If if it is if it's a pure speed acceleration area, they they've got enough going on themselves that they probably just <laughs> leave that to us. Like, there's a lot of trust. There's a lot of trust to be fair. I think for for what we do, um, and Grange has probably got more of a link in terms of some of that terminology on the the game speed end because it's much much closer to the game. But in the rest of our program. Like we do a lot of pathetic development prep and everything else. We've got queuing systems that, as as a department, SNC and medical, we're all on top of what those things are and what we're trying to achieve. But from a rugby perspective, they probably wouldn't 
engage with that very much and that's that's fine you know i mean that's more of a trust thing that we're going to give you this outcome by the program that we run um so it just depends on depends on the area really and whether there needs to be communication around that because if you overload the communication in terms of integration it becomes a it becomes a pain in the arse for the coach and then you kind of lose a little bit of that integrity of when you do want to actually collaborate on something so we've got to be and the same with players we're very very careful with how much information how much language how much queuing how many principles we go after with players and then when we're having conversations with coaches you've got to be pretty essentialist as Dan said earlier in terms of, of what you discuss and what you go after to make sure there's a value in those conversations that you're going to push the thing forward does a rugby coach need to know what coaching cue we use for an ankle hop probably not you know it's, it's probably not worth going down that route with them but all the SSC staff need to know and all the medical staff need to know what, what way we would coach and cue that so probably depends on the scenario really I've kept you guys for probably half an hour the first time around plus 52 minutes for this time around so I'm, I'm conscious that you, you've got a little bit of your evening left and I really do appreciate your time and coming on for a technically a second time but my last question was for Grangey and based on that game speed um, section that we had in this episode how do you try to understand the transfer and bringing this back to the transfer side how do you try to understand how your stuff on the game speed side is actually transferring to the to, to a Saturday and how do you try to do that objectively subjectively it's messy yeah it's messy take an educated opinion and hope for the best um nah like probably think of it in in I guess like probably three layers to it in a sense like the first primary layer is like let's try not let's let's not get too lost in what our kind of primary role is like let's make sure technically within whatever strategy it is or whatever layer it is whatever that they're getting better and that's like that's on an individual level and at the team level um that's built from technical models that's built from creating kpis by the nature of creating these kpis you kind of have a primary question as such and it's as simple as watching back videos of your session and your coaching and the, the lads getting as much footage as you can to be able to right did they hit that landmark cool start boom go start 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 next one next one next one and then that gives you kind of the overall percentage across that that targeted that targeted kpi and it's like and then tracking that over time and and across the block, whatever the KPI is, you're focusing across that that cycle. Are we are we getting better? And then as, as are we getting better as individuals? Are the individuals getting better across that time? And as a group average, are we are we improving? And I think that's the, like that's the primary focus. That's like our our key philosophy is really our efficiency, capacity, and transfer. So we need to make sure that that efficiency landmark, and you know, we've talked about it owning owning your own stuff. We need to make sure that's in place. That's that's the primary aim. Again, as we're talking about, like when we get into to gains and such like it's probably where it gets a bit messy we, we've tried to like apply a few you can apply a few different game stats and, and that works um perhaps maybe for league-wide stats that, that are consistently done by the same people and these companies etc for say like carry power for example like we spoke about earlier if we're looking at change direction qualities yeah maybe we can look at defenders beaten or line breaks made and you know, i referred to a little bit in the article at the time you know there's a fairly significant relationship between people who finished in the top four and people who finished in the bottom four for line breaks, which is great. But then it's kind of navigating, like we've discussed, navigating that process of how we're creating line breaks. Is it kind of a system thing or is it a, a steps thing, an individual thing? Um, so we can 
we can look at these stats and we do like we do we keep a log of these stats consistently but i think it's important to to get that feedback to and from the coaches like having that kind of understanding and discussions from a coaching standpoint is are, are we making their system better like do they feel like there's less kind of movement problems within their system are these individuals um able to perform their system without any issues is there certain individuals that need certain bit more of an extra stuff or a bit less of this stuff and then uh, as a team are we are we executing whatever principle we're targeting at that point and then i guess like the third layer to that would be can, how are we adding value to players and that's probably something that has kind of come over definitely the last six months but definitely over the over uh, over the last year really it's like how are we just adding value to players? How can we clip up our foot? Are we clipping up footage consistently week in, week out and sending out to, to players individually, asking them questions back and forth? And it might be as simple as just asking them questions. It might be as simple as going, look, what did you see here? What do you think? Could you have made a cut in here? Could you have made a cut out there? Does that is is that what you are you're intending, but you just couldn't do it? Or did you just not even see that as as an option? And then that kind of just snowballs a little bit and creates like really good conversations. Like even even in preseason now, you're getting conversations from a technical standpoint. When we do in our a lot of evasive drills, you know, where some people just don't see these options and they need a bit of probing in that sense. They just need a bit of cueing and a bit of education around what are maybe the, the cues that they need to be able to see to make a certain cut. Some people see it, but they just yeah, Granger, I just I just can't make that, mate. Like I'm just not I'm just not there yet, or I can't make it off my left. But I can, you know, I, I feel much more confident on my right. We got one lad who's who's so dominant at one side. He says his best left foot step is when he just tucks off his left foot and goes back onto the right because his right foot's so dominant. And, and that's like the kind of movement solutions we're trying to we're trying to solve. Um, so I guess like it's probably those three pillars which would kind of give us technical reviews, feedback to and from coaches, and then feedback kind of to and from players that ultimately just like I say just gives you this kind of educated opinion of of whether you're making a change. It's um, the technology around kind of biomechanics and upright running and sprinting and stuff is becoming much better and view motion is becoming a real more popular and it's, and it's brilliant. Um, but in terms of kind of probably game speed and change direction and in-game stuff is probably lacking still. Um, we're still just waiting, holding our breath for that. For that. Um, so again, a long-winded answer to your question is probably those three 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 layers as such that, that I'll look by and then at the end of the block we'll, we'll have a pretty honest review across all departments of whether we feel like we've made a shift. Um, and then really, who knows? Who knows? So the lads do the business on the weekend. Cool. Well, like I say, we're getting up to an hour and I'm going to let you you two get on with your evening. But thank you very much for technically a part two, but a part one. But Dan, before I let you go, where can people find out more about you? Obviously, I could guide people to the, the article that we've, we've spoken a lot about, but where can people find you on social media? Are you a social media guy? A little bit? Um, I'm kind of a, I'm a silent observer on, on Twitter. Oh, I've no, not no another one. What my, what my address is. I can give you my home address. That might be easier. Telephone <laughs> <laughs> number. You've both, got, you've both got a Sportsman t-shirt on the way, so I do actually know your home address. Outstanding. <laughs> 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 let's not share that in this rob no 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 no, 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 no absolutely not <laughs> so grangy do you know yours are you a social media man um <laughs> only because i've just got it up here 
I, you can, I, I don't know. You do yours, Grange. You don't be embarrassed now. You do yours. Yeah, cheers, mate. Yeah, I'll share yours as well, shall I? <laughs> um, yeah, on my social media, yeah, I don't know. I go through phases. Sometimes I, I love it. Sometimes I hate it. Sometimes I just ignore it. Um, since the articles, since it. the articles come out, I've loved it. Yeah, it's been great. <laughs> um, it's been class. Yeah. Um, apparently, my Twitter is d underscore Grange twenty three. Apparently, so that's that's that. I, I I'll generally reply. Yeah, I'll get I'll get your. Uh, I'm pretty pretty live on there most days, uh, but really just Twitter to be honest with you, or email if I like what you have to say. Cool, right. Thank you very much. Dan, thank you. Grangey, thank you. And uh, yeah, thanks for coming on again. Enjoy your Sportsmith t-shirt when it finally lands on your doorsteps. And uh, look forward to catching up soon. Great. Cheers, Rob. Thank you, Rob. Big thanks to the two Dans for coming on, reflecting on both articles they wrote, but also delving deeper into training transfer and the game speed model at Gloucester Rugby. Also, big thanks to Hawking Dynamics and Team Builder for sponsoring this episode today. The podcast could not run in its current form without these guys, so I really do appreciate all their support. Big thanks to you for tuning in and look forward to chatting to you next time. Mm-hmm.